that comes up so often about how six million Jews was destroyed under Hitler's administration. I felt the kinship because it wasn't six million of my people destroyed. It was 40 million of my people destroyed as they were bringing my ancestors here on the slave ships of Africa. When Fannie Lou Hamer spoke at the University of Wisconsin in 1973, she connected something that American history rarely explores, that the genocidal ideas of Hitler were borrowed from the genocidal actions of the United States. In this episode, The History of Injustice, we're looking at the legacy of forced pregnancy, sterilization, and pregnancy criminalization, which is still going on today. Black women and black pregnant people's bodies have historically and continue to be under surveillance and monitored and controlled. I wrote a report called Women's Watch that predicted that there would be overlap between the white supremacist movement and the anti-abortion movement. Anti-abortionists were the eugenicists. They wanted control of birth, but they also wanted WASP women to not have abortions. It stopped short of where Mengele and the other Nazi architects took it. But I don't see it as categorically different. I think it's just a different level of extreme. You assume that when you go for help through an agency or to the doctor, that that's what you're going to get. You don't assume that shortly thereafter, you're going to be incarcerated. This is American Dreams, Reproductive Justice. I'm your host, Erica Washington. Almost 50 years after Fannie Lou Hamer gave that speech, author Isabel Wilkerson picked up the thread of sterilization and genocide in her book, Cast. Here's Wilkerson talking at the Atlanta History Center about what the Germans learned from us in the 1920s and 30s. German eugenicists actually turned to and consulted with American eugenicists in the years and decades leading up to the Third Reich. I discovered that American eugenicists were writing books that were bestsellers, huge sellers in Germany in the years leading up to the Third Reich. Now, of course, the, the Nazis needed no one. They needed no one on this earth to teach them how to hate. That they knew. They were hating uh, all, all along. But what they did was they sent researchers to America, and it's focusing mainly on the, on the Jim Crow South, to study how the Americans had subjugated African Americans. They looked and researched the anti miscegenation laws, which I must add um, uh, existed in the majority of the American states at one point or the other. It was not limited just to the South. So they came and they, the Nazis came and they studied the anti miscegenation laws. They studied the segregation laws to see how was it that, that America had segregated and subjugated African Americans. And then what they did was they went back and they debated these laws that were the American laws as they were crafting what would ultimately become the Nuremberg Laws. So how does this relate to reproductive justice? I'm going to have historian Alexandra Minister answer that. Reproductive justice is about the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, and the right to raise that child in a healthy and, and safe environment. And so 
when we think of reproductive injustice, it's just as much about forced sterilization as it is about anti-abortion and abortion control among women. Alexandra Stern, she says to call her Alex, is, well, I'll let her introduce herself. I'm trained as a historian and completed my PhD now over 20 years ago and have worked on the history of eugenics and reproductive politics for quite a long time. She also heads the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab with her colleague, Natalie Lira, who we will hear from in a few minutes. Let's listen to the last part of what Alex said again. When we think of reproductive injustice, it's just as much about forced sterilization as it is about anti-abortion and abortion control among women. Sterilization and anti-abortion, you would think these things are opposite aims, but they are all about controlling the reproductive process of people who are seen in white America as being marginalized. Loretta Ross, one of the founders of the reproductive justice movement, talked about this in episode one. Black women's sexuality and our child rearing and even producing children has always been a deeply politicized project within this white supremacist system. I mean, before the end of slavery, having children enriched our enriched the slave masters after the end of the Civil War, then all of our fertility and our children became problematic. And so we've always been subjected to strategies of population control or eugenics or thinking that our children and our fertility are the source of many of, of America's problems. Patriarchal systems have been in place for centuries and unfortunately we have never you know transformed our way out of them despite attempts of feminism and gender egalitarianism so i always like to go back to thinking about the work of dorothy roberts who wrote this book called killing the black body where she really applies the lens of reproductive injustice to think about um, enslaved women and how reproductive control was absolutely essential to slavery in the U.S. because the way for the slave owners and the system to produce more slaves was to have slave women birth more children who immediately would be under the control of the masters. And so that's an example of how racialized reproductive control was literally built into the fabric in the capitalist system in this country affecting obviously enslaved women of african descent as well as indigenous women and you know poor white women who were especially like irish women in the 19th century and, and like that whose bodies were seen as subject to patriarchal or state control reproductive control that is the total aim And we can't truly address reproductive justice until we address the ways the system wants to control our bodies. Being anti-abortion and pro-sterilization may seem like opposites, but they're just different tools in the arsenal of white supremacist systems that want to make sure only preferred babies are born, like the Nazis. Here's Alicia Suarez. She's a professor of history at DePaul University in Indiana. Horatio Storer, who helped create the American Medical Association, had a lot of um, xenophobic ideas, to put it mildly. 
He was very concerned, as were many others at the time, about ethnic immigrants. So think like Irish Catholics, Italian Americans, etc., and their birth rates. And there was concern that these ethnic, as they were called at the time, ethnic immigrants, they weren't actually what many would call whitened at that time, that their birth rate was going to supersede WASP birth rates. So it was seen as a threat. But as Alicia says, the aim wasn't to stop ethnic immigrants from reproducing. In the late 19th century, when Storer was creating medical policy, they wanted control of birth, but they also wanted wasp women to not have abortions. One of the important things about someone like Storer is that there has been a way in which the right has taken up abortion and has basically equated it with genocide and with eugenics. When really we go back in time, what we see is that anti-abortionists were the eugenicists because what they wanted was reproductive control of women's bodies and to be able to make the decisions and set the parameters for who had babies and who did not have babies. That all changed in the 20th century as the idea of eugenics began to take hold and the preferred way to control reproduction of ethnic and racial undesirables was through sterilization. There's a scene in the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Underground Railroad, in which a distraught black woman comes out of the woods and yells, they've taken my babies. The book by Colson Whitehead is often called a reimagining of American history, but it's really a historically telescoped telling of injustice against black people in the U.S. The characters in the story don't understand what the woman means. She has, to their knowledge, never had children. We later realized that the character was given a hysterectomy. My name is Natalie Lira. I am an associate professor in the Department of Latina and Latino Studies at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Historically, people's reproductive capacity has been viewed in different ways depending on their race, gender, class status, nationality. You know, I think historically and generally folks who come from marginalized communities, people of color, low-income people, people with disabilities, have been seen as exhibiting reproductive behaviors that are concerning, deviating from the norm, racial norms, class norms, norms about family size and family figurations. Single mothers have been seen as exhibiting, you know, deviant reproductive behaviors, or women that have sex outside of marriage are discussed as having deviant sexual behaviors that are tied to the ways that their reproduction has been controlled and stereotyped as negative. One of those people was Fannie Lou Hamer in 1961, three years before she spoke at the Democratic National Convention and 12 years before she gave the speech that opened this episode. Fannie Lou Hamer is one of many Black women who went in to receive reproductive care in a hospital and was sterilized without her consent. Um, And that happened in the 60s and 70s. And it occurred to women who were imprisoned in California. In 2020, we learned that detained immigrants in Georgia also experienced unwanted hysterectomies. And so there's a long pattern of sterilization abuse, especially to folks that uh, receive medical care in 
state-run facilities. Hamer found out she had been sterilized after she had gotten home and overheard someone talking about it. They didn't even tell her in the hospital. She has credited her political activism with her anger over being sterilized without being told. And it's still going on. Natalie also brought up the accusations that a doctor at a detention center in Georgia had forcibly given hysterectomies to immigrant detainees in 2019 and 2020. A nurse at the facility blew the whistle. The doctor was fired. Lawsuits were filed. They are still ongoing. In November, a Senate panel led by Georgia Senator John Ossoff released findings that there were excessive, invasive, and often unnecessary gynecological procedures performed at the facility. But the committee did not substantiate unnecessary hysterectomies. This is where the U.S. intersects with Nazi Germany, because forced sterilization was all about purifying the white race and getting rid of undesirables. It also violates the first tenet of reproductive justice, the right to have a child. Our psychologist, uh, made a study, they found the lowest group of people, lowest IQ, first was American Indian, second was a Negro, the third was the Portuguese. That was a recording of Fred O. Butler displaying the kinds of racism we see on the political right today. Butler was the medical superintendent of Sonoma State Home for 31 years, starting in 1919. During his tenure, the Home for the Mentally Deficient performed more than 5,400 sterilization procedures, mostly on females, but some on males. My name's Phil Barber. I'm a reporter for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. And about a year ago, we published a story that I wrote about forced sterilizations at the Sonoma State Home Institution. Phil's piece is a harrowing read, which we have linked on our website. Like a lot of things that spiral into evil, it started in a good place, at least in terms of intentions. There was a whole movement in the early 20th century where people were rethinking the idea of how do we build a better society and it led to a, a lot of um, progressive movements like workplace safety violations and some, some areas like that. But part of it also, there was a medical side to it and a, and a genetic side to it where some of the leading scientists of the day, really, some of the leading thinkers who came to believe that we weren't doing enough to shape the gene pool, basically, the human gene pool and the American gene pool. It's about control and it's also about the controllers. And, you know, in the case of California, it's about transplanted white wasp elites who wanted to create the state in their own image. And really for them, it was about creating their own utopia, but their own utopia was a dystopia for really the majority and particularly any minoritized or stigmatized group. Honestly, the movement started in America, or at least on any wide scale. Eugenics was an American-born idea. And in the 1930s, the Nazi German regime lapped it up. There's direct evidence of communications back and forth between members of that regime 
and California eugenicists. And ours sort of became a model. I see these forced sterilizations as sort of the extreme end of it here, where we were physically preventing people authorities considered undesirable from having children. I think it's important to look at the eugenicists themselves and what their beliefs are, what they wanted to create, and how it was driven by their own anxieties, their demographic anxieties, their anxieties about their own masculinity and gender issues, their anxieties about race and about difference. It stopped short of where Mengele and the other Nazi architects took it. But I don't, I don't see it as categorically different. I think it's just a different level of extreme. And perhaps we had stronger institutions in the United States. Weimar Germany was in awful condition and things really fell apart. And uh, I, don't, you know, I don't know if there's something about the, the German national mentality that was different than the American national mentality, but the basis of these ideas and programs are not that different. It's just that, thank God, we didn't wind up going as far. They couldn't have done this in a more established state like New York. And in fact, in New York, never passed a sterilization law in part because Irish and Italian immigrants and their representatives were able to push back attempts at the level of the state. But in California, you have this kind of sense of the newness or the desire for building their own kind of version of a Mediterranean paradise in California and really you find these patterns throughout the West. So I think it's important to understand like, well, what motivated them and what their progressivism had obviously a very ugly underbelly called eugenics that I think is still relevant today when you think about California's issues and problems and ongoing, it, it might be the bluest state, but it still has, a lot of these issues are still at play when it comes to or parts of the population. The kind of official diagnosis for admission was a condition that was referred to as feeble-mindedness or mental deficiency. Feeble-mindedness, IQ of 77, borderline, typical Mexican. That's what it says here. But it was applied very broadly and in different ways over time. And so, Folks with disabilities were committed to these institutions and also young people that were in the criminal legal system. So young people that were engaged in petty crimes, theft. This was particularly the case with young boys who would be picked up by an officer, given an IQ test, labeled feeble-minded, and then sent to this type of institution. For young women, it was often related to sexual deviance. So if they were labeled promiscuous, if they ran away with their boyfriends, if they were having sex outside of marriage, if they were having children outside of marriage, they could be, again, picked up by juvenile authorities given an IQ test, if they scored low on the IQ test, then a probation officer and a social worker and a judge decided that they fit this criteria of low intelligence or feeble-mindedness. They 
could be legally committed to an institution like Sonoma or Pacific Colony. And so these are the kind of behaviors and the kind of ideas that contributed to decisions around commitment. And they were, of course, shaped by racism and classism. A lot of low-income people, people struggling with poverty, were also committed because they were seen as economically incompetent. In California, what you also see is that academic institutions were the knowledge that was produced that helped further develop and expand IQ testing, which then created and made categories like feeble-mindedness more pervasive these academic institutions played a really critical role in building eugenic networks and creating kind of an infrastructure for eugenic ideologies and the bills that were passed. And they worked often with state agencies, which again reflected a lot of these kind of elite desires for the state. By using the IQ tests as the measure and then also as it progressed using behavior as a measure, people could be sent there for truancy as a teenager. Young women could be sent there because they had an out-of-wedlock teen pregnancy. There were cases where it was incest that got a young woman pregnant, but she would still be sent to the institution. And those IQ tests were conducted in English, and there was a much higher rate of immigrants being sent for sterilization. In Sonoma and Pacific Colony, which Natalie has studied, they actually had a kind of like policy on the books that sterilization was a prerequisite for release. Later in this program of forced sterilizations, there was an increased focus on almost outpatient sterilizations where it was not long-term residents of the facility, but people, mostly teens, who were getting into trouble or a young woman who was considered promiscuous, they would send kids up pretty much just to be sterilized. And they would present them with an ultimatum. You can stay here and work on this farm for who knows how long or you and your family can accept this sterilization and we'll let you go after a couple of weeks. Ultimately, eugenics, as Alex points out, is not just about sterilization. It's about keeping poor people and people of color in line. What eugenics did is it made social issues biological problems and it individualized social issues and it said the source of poverty is not unequal economic systems that create unequal economic you know, relationships. It is defective individuals that poor people breed other poor people. And if someone was poor, it was likely because they were feeble-minded, that they were not intelligent enough to make money. And if we want to address issues of poverty, we need to make sure that poor people stop having babies. And that is the idea behind the welfare queen as well, right? That these are low-income women that are taking advantage of the state. They're lazy, they're irresponsible breeders, and they have children as a way of making money. With the kind of emergence of the and, and the demonization of the welfare queen, which we see in the 60s and 70s, 
And it also is connected to a shift in reproductive injustice and sterilization from really that initial focus among eugenicists on basically bad genes to a focus more on bad parenting. Focus from unfit to reproduce to unfit to parent. Unfit to parent. We'll explore that next. But I want to end this segment with another story Phil is working on about Sonoma State Home. Not to tip my hand too much, but I'm I'm working on a long-term project right now that has to do with radiation experiments that the U.S. government has acknowledged that it did on certain populations, including prison populations, including, for example, children with cerebral palsy. And there are a lot of people who believe some of that went on at Sonoma State Home as well. Which, of course, violates the third tenet of reproductive justice, raising children in a healthy environment. The voices you've heard on today's program are civil rights icon, Fannie Lou Hamer, author, Isabel Wilkerson, historian, Alexandra Stern, professor, Loretta Ross, historian, Alicia Suarez, historian, Natalie Lira, eugenist, Fred O. Butler, journalist, Phil Barber. We also want to pay homage to the 12 women who were in the room in 1994. Dr. Tony Bond, Reverend Alma Crawford, the late Evelyn S. Field, Terry James, Bissola Marignan, Cassandra McConnell, Cynthia Newble, Loretta Ross, Elizabeth Terry, Representative Abel Mabel Thomas, Wynette P. Willis, and Kim Youngblood. Thank you for listening to American Dreams, Reproductive Justice. Created, hosted, and executive produced by Erica Washington. That's me. Also executive produced by Harry Kaufman with Overthinking Media, LLC. Music by Will Black for Black Gypsy Music with incidental music by The Flowbots. Artwork by Brent Holmes. This podcast is empowered by the donations to Make It Work Nevada. Next week on American Dreams Reproductive Justice. I'm screaming. I'm pregnant. I'm being threatened to be tased. I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. At that point, they drag me out and uh, they put me in solitary. And it's, it's dirty solitary. There's hair, fingernails, like feces on the toilet. I have no blanket, nothing. Like, I would just lay in bed and I would just, like, think to myself, I'm like, did I do something? Like, am I really in hell? We'll look at how women are criminalized just for being pregnant. You can see what Wisconsin is doing is basically applying the state's child maltreatment laws onto the situation of pregnancy. And it really doesn't uh, compute. That's American Dreams Reproductive Justice, wherever you get your podcasts and every Sunday morning at 7 a.m. on 91.5 Jazz and More.